Tonight's guest is a creator of fantasy worlds and peak moments. He is the co-founder of the Florence Academy of Art in Gothenburg, serving as its academic director for 10 years. Later, he swapped painting for the drawing pad and gaming industry. Joachim Eriksson, welcome to the Cave of Palace. Thanks for having me. Now, we have an overarching topic for the evening. What constitutes good storytelling? Uh, we'll consider this through looking at your earlier work in oil, like the Burning Horse. And of course, considering your background at the Florence Academy, through academic painters such as uh, Bouguereau, uh, but also Ald Nerdrum, with whom you've studied. Yeah. And I know that your uh, current digital work and the work of other illustrators will also help clarify and, and give us an answer. Yeah. Uh, which will bring us to the archetypical qualities of fantasy and science fiction like Star Wars and to the differences between the modern and the classical hero. It's quite a journey, isn't it? It is. But first, we want to know a little bit about you. You're a digital painter now. What is your work? What's your everyday life now? Yeah, I'm, I'm a combination of, I'm a concept artist uh, and I'm working. That's quite ironic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a concept artist working in the gaming industry, uh, and I also do illustrations uh, on the side. So I'm a sort of concept artist illustrator. I mean, those two those two fields are quite close together, mm. but they're a little bit differentiated. So what is a concept artist? Because we're not talking about conceptual art. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, a concept artist is basically basically someone who gets this t the task to to visualize a project. So it could be a game, or it could be a movie, or something like that. And basically someone has um, uh, an intellectual, not in, maybe not intellectual, but has a, a very, uh, in a way, clear idea of what the project needs to be. Right. Uh, but they might not know what the project is going to look like visually. Okay. So the question is then, okay, what are everything, what's everything going to look like? What are the environments going to look like? What are the characters going to look like? What's going to be the type of lighting? What's going to be the type of mood that we're going to have in this project? Uh, and a concept artist working together with the art director is basically responsible for creating these, basically visualizing uh, the whole world in uh, in the project. Right. And like, so, so this example then, mm -hmm. what is this uh, for? What did you do this for for a game or for? A... No, this is. Um, I mean, the thing is, also with the concept art world, it's very, uh, uh, it's very competitive. Um, so you you constantly just have to practice and get better and try new things. Right. Um, it's not a job that I would recommend to anyone who just wants to work nine to five. Okay. And then you you know you you watch movies or read books or whatever for the rest of the time. It, it's very it's very competitive. So you constantly have to like practice because there's also it covers such a huge field. There's so many things, um, and and a lot of people specialize on just doing one certain type of of of, uh, of work. Um, and then you have other people like me who I try to diversify what I do. So I I, I like to do environments and characters. And keyframes, you know, which in storytelling is very crucial. Like keyframe is a sort of um, is you depict a scene. Um, I think the the term you use is is a peak moment, mm, right. uh, where it's something that's like the most in, important sort of like concentrate. It's basically uh, a scene where 
everything gets really, really concentrated. And it's, it's, that's why it's called a keyframe, because it's a key moment in, in oh, the whole story. Okay, okay. And a frame as in a frame in, in, a, in a movie. Yeah, exactly. So frame is basically, yeah, the movie frame. Yeah. Mm. Right. So there's so many things you can do. Uh, and I, I, I like to do as much as possible. Yeah. Um, not as much as possible, but I, I like to do probably uh, have a wider range of tasks than, than most people do. Right. Where this, did this interest come from? I mean, were you always uh, interested in sort of fantasy, sci-fi, these things? There was one thing that happened when I was five years old that I think definitely, uh, I would say, sparked my, my enthusiasm for science fiction and fantasy for, well, for, for the rest of my life. Mm. And that was in 1977 when, when the first Star Wars uh, hit, right. hit, hit Sweden. So tell us about the cathartic moment. Uh, yeah, it was very strange because, uh, and people, you know, I think I think it's hard for just as it's hard for people to remember uh, a world without internet. Uh, in the sci-fi world and the fantasy sort of genre, I think it's also very hard to imagine a world before Star Wars. Right. Uh, because nothing had, there was nothing like it really before. Even though, I mean, George Lucas, when he made it, he based a lot of his. Uh, storytelling and and the characters and you know some some basic elements he based on 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 maybe like Flash Gordon early stuff, wow. but just visually and also in terms of uh, you know the the um, uh, the emotional impact and the seriosity of it, uh, nothing came like not, nothing uh, you know most people hadn't seen anything close to, close mm -hmm. to that, and I remember I was five years old and it was on the Swedish news. And, and my mother said, oh, you should watch this now. It's, it's about this new American movie that's, that's coming out, you know, that's taking the world by storm. And, uh, and then they show the first scenes. I think it was one, one or two scenes from Star Wars. And it starts with those big spaceships flying through space. Uh, the rebels are being hunted by the Empire. And, uh, and eventually they get, uh, they, get, you know, they get caught by the Empire. And then the, the stormtroopers weld through the doors and they, they break through the door and they start killing everyone, all the rebels, and the princess is running away trying to hide. And then through the door comes the silhouette of Darth Vader. Right. And in, the, in that moment, my life was, was changed. I, I was completely mesmerized. I, I was obsessed with it. And I just kept, I just, I drew Darth Vader, I drew stormtroopers for, for years and years and years. And from then on, I was like, I preferred living in that fantasy world than to live in, in the real world. Right, right. Yeah. But then you went to art school uh, at some point, right? Yes, it was um, the first time I went, because the thing was I, was, I was always drawing, but being in Sweden, also in the, in the days before internet, uh, I basically had no idea that you could, that you, could uh, you know, be an illustrator as a profession. Um, and uh, I knew there were artists, though, because my, my, my dad used to collect uh, paintings, basically. So we'd go to all the auction houses in Sweden and he would buy paintings. Uh, not just as investments. I mean, investment was part of it, but it was also like he wanted to have good images on, on the wall. So I was exposed to, to quite a bit of those like auction catalogs, right. which is basically like the, this big catalog with just hundreds of images. You can sit there and go through all of them, you know, and, and it's basically a gold mine for just looking at art. It's, it's great because it's not it's not chosen by an art historian, so it's not sort of a political politically correct exactly yeah uh, history of the development yeah. so called. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically we have all these paintings. Yeah. Who wants to buy them? <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and I mean it's it's everything you can imagine, right? Mm. 
but anyway, so after, after my teenage years, I did my military service, which was a, a very depressing year. Um, I, I, my career in the military is, um, was very, uh, well, it just wasn't for me. Um, so the year after that, I think my parents who forced me to, to complete my military service because I wanted to drop out because I was so, uh, I was so miserable. But they convinced me to, to, to finish it. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, but then I think they sort of felt guilty uh, for making me do that because they could see that I wasn't doing, like I was really suffering uh, through that year. <clears throat> so what they did, they enrolled me in an art school the year after. So when I was finished with my military service, they basically said, we applied to an art school for you. For you. Uh, somehow they could do that because the school did not, they did not take um, work samples. What do you call it? Um, yeah, yeah, like yeah, drawings or whatever. Yeah, like you didn't have to send in a port portfolio of your work. Yeah. Um, so they could basically just like list my name and say, okay, he wants to go there. And then I, and I got this uh, position in this art school. And it was called Konskolan i Stockholm. So the art school in Stockholm. Right. <clears throat> so it was one of those one year preparatory educations uh, for anyone. So it's basically, you can say like a beginner school for, for artists. Um, and uh, it was, I think it was an okay school, even though uh, obviously in Sweden in those days, there was no place really where you could study to really learn how to draw and how to paint because almost no one knew how to do that. I mean, it was a tradition that, that was lost. Um, but I have to say this school, at least it was, it was uh, free in the sense that they let you paint the way you wanted. And they also let you try all these different fields in art. So we got to do, you know, we, we did model drawing, we did self portraits, uh, we did uh, sculpture, we did photography. Uh, we even did copying. Um, so one teacher actually, we had one week of copying, which is obviously a week is not a lot of time if you want to copy Leonardo da Vinci, <laughs> which is what I did. But, but at least I, I got to do the, you know, prepare the canvas the old way with the, the rabbit skin glue and use the, the tempera and build things up in layers and glazing at the end. Um, you did that at, at National Museum then or? No, no, I just got a big poster for right, it. Right. Because I think at the time there was a, a Leonardo da Vinci exhibition that had been shown in Stockholm. And that painting was in that show. So I, right. got, I got a good quality poster for, from that uh, exhibition. Um, so I did that for a year. And, uh, and then I realized, okay, this is something I really want to do because uh, it was a very stimulating year. And, uh, and I was working very hard and I wanted to get better. <clears throat> But the problem was after that, like, where do you go after that? And obviously, yeah. I thought being, being 20, 20 or 21 years old, you're very naive. You know nothing about the world. So my idea was that I was going to go to the, to the, the Royal Art Academy in Stockholm. Okay. Because I thought that's where you go to, to, to learn how to paint. Obviously, I didn't know then what I know now. So, so you know, it's kind of cute that I thought that that would be the solution. Uh, so I spent then... Uh, basically three or four years in Stockholm, uh, you know, not knowing what I, like, what I should do because I was applying to all these schools, um, but I didn't get accepted anywhere. Uh, and it was a very confusing time, it was very frustrating uh, because finishing the art school that I, that I did, the year that I did, the art school in Stockholm, coming out of that, I, my self-confidence was actually quite high because I thought, oh, I, I can actually do this because I was looking at what everyone else was doing. <laughs> Which was much worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my stuff was bad, but it was, you know, it was 
among the best that was that was being done in a in a in a realistic sense. Um, so those years were, were extremely frustrating and didn't get in anywhere. Uh, I was living with my girlfriend in an apartment and I was trying to paint, you know, on the side, like in the evenings and trying to, to learn things. Um, and the thing is teaching yourself, just looking in books. I mean, yeah, you, you get some progress, you know, obviously it's not, it's not completely fruitless to, to do that, but it's very slow because you, you have to make all the mistakes and there's no one that can sort of like set you on the right path. Right. So you have to like try everything like a blind person almost, you know, and, and just search your way through it. And then all of a sudden you 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 um, you find something that works. Okay, at least that works. But then you you keep working, and then you make more mistakes. So it's it's a very time-consuming process. Right, and this is the age before the internet. So yes, um, uh, which it's it's hard for for kids these days, I think, to understand how it was because these days, let's say when 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 I came out of art school, if I would have had if internet would have been around, I could just type in classical realist painting uh, art school and I would get probably hundreds of thousands of hits or at least thousands of hits mm. and just start to go through them <clears throat> but in those days th there was no if no one told you about it or if you didn't like accidentally stumble upon it there was no way you could know about it and there was a school in the world that existed but uh, there was no way for me of knowing knowing about it right. uh, so instead what I ended up doing was <clears throat> I uh, there was uh, there was a job in the library in the in the Royal Academy uh, of Fine Arts in in Stockholm, uh, and I think it's also important to say that the the academy in in Stockholm it used to be the school, but it's not a school anymore. It's a museum, so they separated the the museum and the exhibition and the art the archive part basically from the school. So the art the art university like the Stockholm Royal Art School. Is separated from the academy, so the academy is more sort of like a building for for exhibitions and and archives and and old works. Uh, and they also have a library, and I worked in that library for uh, for one year, um, going home every night, painting, trying to figure things out, out on my own. And uh, working in the library, the benefit of that was sitting there, and the people would return books every day. Um, you know, so you would file the books and you put them on, on the shelf. <clears throat> and one day I saw this, there was a big dark cover uh, of a book and it said Odd Nerdrum. And then uh, it was written by Jan Oke Pettersson. And the image that was on the front was the two twins, uh, these two right, female the, twins. In the sleeping bags. Uh, yeah, in the sleeping bags, yeah. exactly. And I saw the cover and I said, oh, wow, this is, this is very nice. I've never seen this before because it had this sort of like Rembrandt, Caravaggio-esque look. Uh, so I was like, oh, I got to look into this. So instead of filing it and just putting it away on the shelf, I started going through it. And I would see all these like amazing paintings, like self-portraits and all the portraits and multi-figurative uh, works. And, and I was completely blown away. And I said, why haven't I heard of this guy? I mean, this is amazing. And then I started looking at the text because I wasn't reading the text. I was just looking at the images. <laughs> right, right. And then I started seeing the text, you know, underneath the picture. And then it said something like, I, I can't remember exactly which painting, but it was said, you know, painting so-and-so. And then it said the date, 1985. And I was like, what? <laughs> this, is a, this is a guy that is alive today? And I was, that was another moment. That was like the Star Wars moment or the role-playing game moment. That was like, I was completely blown away. 
because I thought I was the the last idiot left on earth who, right. who wanted to work in this way because I also I didn't know about the illustrator tradition in America for instance well, okay. <clears throat> I didn't know about either <clears throat> yeah so so but this did, book it, yeah. it really pause on that I mean basically you were you were feeling really quite lonely extremely lonely the things yeah, you were yeah. were admiring weren't being taught I guess you you figured out at the academy yeah 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 and it was a very confusing very confusing uh, time uh, you know because you're young and when you're young you believe in authority and, and you believe that everyone who's older than you knows better than you at yeah. least I was that way when I was 20 yeah. <clears throat> so to find this book was was an extremely uh, it was like lightning striking you know uh, striking you right in the head uh, and as soon as I saw that, I, so what I did is that, because obviously I could borrow the books as well. <laughs> right. So as soon as it got back, I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow this book. And I brought it home and I was going home every night studying that book and trying to paint self-portraits uh, in, in, in Odd Nerdrum's sort of style. Um, and uh, some of them are still left. Not all of them are destroyed. And, uh, and uh, at some point I could show you them so you can laugh a little bit, but... Yeah, I'd love but to. at least in my little like bubble, then I thought I was making progress. So. Yeah, well, well, suddenly there's hope. Yeah. yeah, all of a sudden there's hope. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, did you uh, apply to him at the, at that time? Or? No, I I was. Uh, the thing was, I saw his his work, and it it, it was such a. The imagery was so striking, and and uh, I could tell right away that this is a person. How should I put it? It's not the per it's not a person whose opinion I would take lightly, lightly. Uh, so I was actually too scared to 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 contact him. Also, I didn't know how to contact him. I guess maybe I could could have found the yellow pages for Norway or something like that. Um, but I was actually too scared, and I and I just realized, okay, I'm going to contact this person one day, uh, you know, and, and and try to figure out if I can study with him. Uh, but first, I have to get better. Like I need to get the bar up higher, so I, right. so I can so, so my the quality of my work is actually to, um, to go, have, good enough to to apply. To have the basic handcraft. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, get the eyes in the right place and. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not making the the head too big and the figure, or you know, um, so 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 that but, was so but, that was the plan. Yeah. Did you at that time could you see the faults of your own paintings, or did you, did you just uh, understand that? You had to learn more. It's it's kind of funny how when you I don't know if it's when you're young because the thing is, <laughs> being naive being naive it can be good and it can be really bad because the good thing about being naive is that you're not afraid to you know you're not afraid to take a step. Uh, right. You know, being naive can actually move you forward because you know this is going to work out. If you're not naive, then there's a big chance that you would just oh, there's no way in hell this is gonna, you know this is right. never going to happen. So right. you just you basically quit before you even started. Uh, so, so I'm ashamed to say it, but but in my naive bubble that I was living in then, looking at some of my paintings and putting like odds book next to them, I would, <laughs> I would actually say oh, it's not it's not too far off. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, obviously, when I see it today, they were quite a bit far off. But right. but. Um, yeah. So, anyways, you you don't apply. Yeah. But no. 
how so what happens you go back to working in the library yeah uh, so i was working in the library in the royal academy and uh, it, it was it was a nice place to work and like this the people around there were very very nice uh, very knowledgeable you know so even though i wasn't painting there i learned a lot and also I, obviously i i got an understanding of the history of the academy uh, you know and and i could walk around i can look at all the cast work they have an amazing cast collection mm. and actually well you would call it probably a sculpture collection you know so there's a lot of stuff to benefit from working there and like i said my colleagues were really good um but i knew that this was this was just a time for me like trying to figure out how to solve this like i have to study with odd at some point um and also after i stopped working in the library and i started working as as um what do you call it like sort of like a handyman mm-hmm. yeah. uh, so i was like hanging exhibitions or... yeah sort of a janitor but I, i wasn't cleaning but i was like hanging pictures and, and and stuff like so like practical work like the walls needed painting or whatever i would do that um, but I, w- i was also responsible for sorting the mail because we would get this company mail every day And I would go to the post post office with a big bag, and I would just take like all the packages and letters in a bag, and I bring it to work. And then I would start sorting them. Okay, this is for the curator. This is for the so and so. This is for the library. And um, as I was going through this, again, just just by accident, I come across a flyer from the Florence Academy. Right. Because <clears throat> Florence Academy had sent a flyer to the Royal Academy. And they thought it was a school, obviously, because if you're not, if you don't know how the system was with, with the academy and the school in Stockholm, you would think that the academy was a school. Right. right. So I think Florence Academy sent uh, sent their flyer. I think it was a flyer and a poster, uh, and they sent it to the academy because they were maybe hoping like they could get some more students. You know that oh, if they wanted to study the classical uh, training, uh, that they could go to 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 the Florence Academy. Um, so I was standing there basically, and and I got these the, the flyer and the poster, and it even had like an application form on it. Really? Yeah. So I was standing there, and I said like, "Oh my god!" And I started looking through the folder. And I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is really good." Like I was looking at like portraits and still lives and figure work and and drawings, and cast drawings. Basically, the work I saw in the in the Florence Academy folder was was the work like work very similar to the ones I admired that was in the archives in the academy right because in the academy you know you had the you could basically just like pull out the drawer and you would have like the cast drawings by by Zorn for instance so because you, he 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 studied this basically the same way or quite similar it was a quite similar way yeah yeah eventually he got fed up with the academy system so he was actually Zorn was actually a dropout like he didn't finish the, right. the academy Uh, he was too good. He had too much uh, skill and and maybe ego. I don't know. Um, but I could see that these images were very very close to 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 the the 19th century work that I admired because I mean my favorite work has always been late 19th century and and uh, and 17th century painting. Right. So like uh, basically Rembrandt and in the 19th century the sort of Zorn, uh, obviously also the pre-Raphaelites and and those sort of painters. Right. Uh, and I could see right away that the Florence Academy. Okay, if this is what they, what they're doing there, this is the only place I know about where I can go and learn uh, what I need to learn, basically. That must have been quite a decisive moment. Then. It was very decisive. Um, it was um, it was a little bit a bit of a mess because by haphazard they they wanted to open up a, a classical training school also in in Stockholm at the time, and I applied at that time. Yeah, exactly at the same time. 
So all of a sudden there was a school that, that was called Natanael Beskov uh, that was going to open up and it was also a classical training school. But it was just a one year, uh, a maximum two year uh, education. And I applied there uh, because the thing is I wanted, to, I wanted to go to Florence because I could see, okay, this is a place where you can really learn something. But at the same time I was living in a relationship with a girl, uh, an amazing woman who, who I loved and, and I knew that she didn't really want to move abroad. Uh, so you have all these practical things right, you know, yeah, in life. So, so I applied to the school in Stockholm and I got in. So then my plan was to go to the Natal and Beskov school. And uh, the application process went through in, in the summer and, and they said like, yeah, you, you know, can start in the fall. You know, your, your application work looks really good. And so I was excited about it. And then I got a phone call, I think maybe late summer or something. I said like, yeah, hello, this is me. I'm the, I'm the, the director for the Natal and Beskov school. Yeah. You know, the thing is that the government is not going to grant us the, the student loan uh, program for our school. So the school is canceled. Oh so the school never opened. The plan was to open this school, but then they were denied the, the, the student, uh, student funding and the student loan. It's some blow. <clears throat> yeah. So, so, they actually, so the school was canceled. It never opened. Uh, and then, so what then, went I, through your mind? <laughs> yeah. So then again, I was well. First of all, I felt sorry for 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 them, you know, because the the, the guy who who called me up seemed like a really genuine and nice person, <clears throat> who were and he was excited to start this school. Um, uh, so then all of a sudden, I was in limbo again. And then I went home and I told my girlfriend, "Listen, the the school that I got accepted to has been cancelled. It doesn't. It's not going to happen. So my only chance now is to actually go to Florence Academy." I mean, I could tell that Florence Academy was probably a safer bet if you wanted to learn something. Right. Okay, but yeah. yeah. But but uh, but I wasn't that keen on moving abroad. Uh, but then she said, you know, if this is really what you need to do, then then we'll we'll move down there. So she, you know, yeah, very 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 nice of her. So we actually moved to Florence in the in the fall of '98. Right. Yeah. And how long did you stay there? I stayed for three years. Uh, because the program was three years. Right. Yeah. So tell us about that. I mean, what what is the purpose of the education? What what is? I mean, what do you learn throughout those three years? Yeah, I would say the easiest way to explain the the Florence Academy, if you want to call it a method, uh, which I think you can do. I think you can call it a method because it's basically it's a practical sort of philosophy of like how do you accomplish uh, good realism. Um, and it's the it's the it's the old word, you know. The, in any art school, you will hear this: "Oh, you have to learn how to see. You have to learn how to see." But learning how to see can mean a lot of different things. I mean, learning how to see some, you know, it's just like a it's a cliche word, I think. But I think at the Florence Academy, actually, what they do is that they actually do learn, tell you, they they teach you how to see, yeah. uh, because it's a, it's a very sort of strict curriculum that they have. And it's and in the beginning, it's it's very based on accuracy. It's all about accuracy. It's not about, oh, look at the energy in your drawing and things like that. I mean, okay. they don't they don't uh, uh, they don't dislike if you have energy in your drawings, but they're not going to critique you on it. Right, right. Okay. They only critique you. Okay, is it accurate or not? <clears throat> so the first part so really, of the, really a secure capture of the form. Super secure capture. So you have you basically have you have to nail the drawing yeah. by by a fraction of a millimeter. Uh, and you have to nail the values, and you have to nail the half tones, and you have to nail the edges. Right. So, so yeah. So, th- so this this is the first year, and, and what, like you f- first you do, 
copies of of uh, Barg. Uh, Charles lithi- Barg, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So, so he, he's an academic painter, nineteenth century. Yeah, nineteenth century, exactly. Right. And and he actually, as far as I know, he made these lithographs uh, as as uh, as a sort of template. Uh, template curriculum, um, what do you call it? Like, not props, but but it's basically material that you can use right, right, right. to to yeah. to teach um, uh, art students. So uh, uh, he did these like lithographs, which are basically so it's a drawing. I mean, it's a lithograph, but it it looks like drawings, uh, and it's all of, of classical sculptures. Uh, so you have anything from like a simple shape, like. A hand, a hand is not a simple shape, maybe, but you know, you go from like smaller, uh, simpler shapes, and then for every project, because you have to do at least like five bar drawings, uh, you know, they become more and more complex. Right. So then eventually, maybe it's a it's a it's a face, like one that a lot of people do, for instance, is the face of Aristotle, right? You know, with all the hair and everything, and everything has to be super accurate. You know, it's like you don't get any leeway whatsoever. You know, it's like if there's a little curl on the beard, so it's one to one. It's one to one, yeah. And and basically, when they come up and, and and check how accurate you are, you know, they take a plumb line and they just stretch out the plumb line and they just measure directly on mm. the drawing, mm. and they can say like, look at this, this is a millimeter off, and then you have to move it, you know. Mm. So it, it's really really forcing you to to learn how to see. So is, does this relate then to the concept of sight size or? It... <laughs> yeah, I, it's a good introduction to sight size as well. Uh, I, I can say I can I can I can go through what sight size yeah. sight size means. Um, so side size is basically if I would make a portrait of you, for instance, then I would I would paint you uh, or draw you the exact same size as I see you from my point of, of view. Yeah, right. So you have a, uh, what's it called vantage point uh, where yeah. you stand and, yeah, and yeah. you look. So if I wanted to make a life size portrait of you, I would put the canvas right next to your head. Okay. So you would sit right. there and pose. The optical uh, uh, yeah. effect on you. So yeah, I have you there, and I have your, I have your cam- the canvas right next to it, and, and the canvas is approximately on this level. You know, so some of your face is in front of the canvas, and the rest of your head is behind the canvas. Right. And then you step away, and then you look at it from maybe like three or five meters, and I just compare the the, the image that I'm producing of you, and I'm comparing it to you directly. Right. right. Uh, and the barg work is, is preparatory work for that because the barg is flat and then you put your drawing next, right next to it uh, and then you step away and you sort of yeah. just use eye measure you know, to, to see how close you can get. Right. right. Um, and then so <clears throat> in the Florence Academy you start with the barg drawings and uh, you do that half the day and then you draw the figure half the day because it's constantly figure work like so you you you, you draw With live model live model yeah yeah, from, yeah, the, yeah. from the beginning from the beginning from day one yeah mm. so um, so you do half the day model and then half the day you do the bargs uh, and then when you're finished with the bargs when when basically your barg work is good enough that you it seems like you have a basic understanding of 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 values and and edges and and creating a sense of form and a sense of light uh, then you moved on to in, into cast drawing. So basically, what you do then is you 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 take a, a plaster cast of a classical sculpture and you place it in a shadow box and you arrange the lighting. You know, right. and, and you arrange the lighting so you get a good spec, spectrum of, of values. Uh, but also, you use the lighting to basically create a strong sense of form as well. Yeah, I think that that's a really important point. Uh, the problem I see. Uh, or something that, that is a problem with bad figurative painting is exactly that there's no volume there. There's mm-hmm. no there's no uh, lighting. There's no um, 
there's no director involved yeah, 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 in terms yeah. of how 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 to uh, uh, focus the, the, the yeah, yeah 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 yeah. Um, but with with the cast work, you are basically the lighting director in that sense. So you you right. choose how you put it, you know, and then you find something where okay, I, first of all, you, maybe you like the impression. You know, it looks it looks uh, it's pleasing to look at. You know, it, it it just it has an aesthetic value when you look at the lighting, uh, and and usually what that means is also if it looks good, usually it means that you have nice turning of form. You know, and the values and the shapes that yeah. that that are created by the form are easy to read. And, right. and, and you the get maximum volume. Exactly, you get maximum volume, yeah. So, so you do that, with a, you draw the cast. First you do it in charcoal, and then you do the last one with charcoal and, uh, and white chalk on a toned paper. So, uh, so you go from, from just charcoal to charcoal and white, white chalk. And, and the reason for that is that, because after you've done that, then you move on to, to painting in grisaille. Oh, right. So you basically use a mixture. Which is two, col two colors. So. Yeah, the one we used was basically you used, uh, I say basically a lot, Jesus. Um, you use lead white and then you use a mixture of ivory black and, uh, and uh, raw umber. Right. Um, because the thing is, if when you, when you mix white with black, it has a tendency to go very blue. Uh, and if you use it just with, with umber, obviously you, you won't get enough. Uh, like the darks will not be dark enough. So what we what we did in the Florence Academy is that you you take uh, black and umber and mix it together. Mm. So even when the value starts becoming lighter and grayer, you don't get this nasty bluish gray. It's actually a very sort of warm and and um, and neutral gray. I would say much more neutral than you would get if you just use black for the grays. And in a sense, you <clears throat> in a sense you paint with one cool color and one warm color then. Um, and white and. This mixture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I would say there's a little bit of different philosophy, but I, I always recommend it when I was teaching. I always recommend it because some people say you should think about temperature when you do the cast paintings. And and my my view was that it's 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 complicated enough to just start dealing with paint and mixing paint oh, and everything. Okay. So I usually recommend it like don't care about temperature. Just get a neutral dark yeah. tone and then the white and then you just like you, you paint with with chalk and and charcoal yeah exactly so so it's basically a monochrome you know right. you don't care about temperature right. uh, and then when you're done with the cast work uh, so also important to say is that when you when you for instance when you paint the cast in grisaille you also paint the model in grisaille right okay, so, so okay. whatever you're doing for for the sort of studio work like your own personal little studio space uh, like the Borg and and and, uh, and the cast work, you're always doing something like uh, you're doing the same thing with the model, right? So right. that it's it's a sort of cohesive. So when you jump from this step here, you jump to the same step, you know, in 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 the model work. <clears throat> uh, so from grisaille, you go to to still lives in limited palette, and at the same time, then you do the figure in the limited palette, and eventually you do still lives and and portraits in full palette. Right. So you you know you don't just use ochre, uh, red, black, and white, but you use maybe ultramarine, blue, uh, cobalt blue, uh, maybe chrome yellow, and you know uh, maybe alizarin crimson. So you extend the palette a little bit just to get more richness. Mm. And yeah. So, you, so you, when you do this grisaille, <clears throat> the, the purpose is to um, be able to paint, but still. Uh, focus more um, almost solely on the drawing so that the drawing 
sits well. Yeah. Before the, you start int introducing really yeah. the painterly qualities. And, yeah. But I, I guess you don't th think too much about thick and thin and strokes and that when you're doing your size. Some some people some people did, and, and I remember as a teacher, people uh, some students would always ask me like, "Is this painterly enough?" And um, you know, being the grumpy teacher, I always said, "Don't care about that now. You know, care about just getting the drawing and the values and the edges right." Right. Because it's like drawing values and edges are the three big ones. Mm. I mean, with with color, you have much more. Uh, you know, color is much more subjective, and also way more flexible. You know, you can key things in color quite differently, you know, from one painter to the other, but it still looks correct, you know, because mm. it's just how the colors relate to each other. Um, uh, but also the painterly qualities. Uh, I, I, did not, I never recommended people to work on painterly qualities until the very end of, of their training, right, which right, is like right. the, the end of the third year, basically. Right, right. So these are the three uh, basic years. Yes. And so tell us a little bit about the ideals then at the at the Florence Academy. I mean, in terms of what painters were were uh, emphasized as as uh, ideals. Yeah, it's interesting examples because examples to follow. Yeah, it, it's interesting because Florence Academy is is a school that has. Uh, uh, I mean, what they try to do is that they try to establish a tradition. You know, the nineteenth-century academic tradition. But most of that knowledge was lost. Uh, so when, when, when Daniel Graves founded, uh, I hope he agrees with this if he, if he ever hears this, um, that he really had this like, really strong ambition to create you know, a new curriculum for classical realistic painting and drawing. <clears throat> and he had a lot of information, but he didn't have every information. Mm -hmm. There was still, so basically it's like, so I think it was almost like laying a puzzle, you know, you have certain things, you know, okay, this works, this, this we know, this we know, this we know, but then there was like puzzle, pieces of the puzzle missing. Right. Uh, and so what's happened with Florence Academy over the years, uh, from when I started 20 years ago, is that I think they started finding sort of like, because, you know, uh, every student who comes through and who, who develops like really high skills, obviously everyone is an individual and everyone has, I mean, no one works exactly the same. Their temperament is different. You know, maybe their their, their heroes in, in painting are different. So, like the, the the students that would really grow and 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 reach a high level of work, they would all sort of come in with their own experiences. Mm. And I guess they also had their you know their own uh, sort of heroes in painting and things like that. Uh, so I think Florence Academy has been able to sort of. Put, like fill in more pieces of the puzzle as as they went along because the school is not exactly the same now as it was when I started because when I started the the, the two main heroes <coughs> uh, that we looked at for, for basically uh, this is what we're trying to do was was uh, Jerome and, and Bouguereau right those were the two painters that that was talked about over and over and over again yeah so Jerome is I guess his most pa famous painting is the the gladiator yeah, so yeah, yeah. He waits for the word from the from the audience. He waits he for the kill. for the thumb. Yeah, right. yeah. And then you have Bougaro here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but but at the same time, I think because everyone always talked about you know like uh, like Titian and Rembrandt, but Titian and Rembrandt work was an enigma. You know, like no one, right? Uh, at least if I remember correctly, no one re no one could say this is the way they did it. You right. Know? 
So what so, Grace uh, tried to do was to find some secure vantage point. Yeah, basically something where you can have yeah. an objective view and say like, right. look, this we know, okay. and if you learn this, it produces good results. Yeah. You know. So if you uh, so tell us a little bit about this then. Uh, what I mean, Bugaro, as an academic painter, what in this is the um, uh, what was the interest of Florence Academy in, for example, a painting like this? Um, I think the, the interest with, with Bouguereau is his, his drawing, like his, 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 his line work, his line drawing basically is impeccable, even though in, even in painting, I mean, I'm not talking about his drawings, I'm talking about his paintings. Yeah. Uh, really, really strong drawing, uh, perfect understanding of values, uh, good understanding of color, maybe not the strongest colorist to ever lived, you know, but he never does anything that looks ugly like he like he has a very sort of looking at his images everything is just very harmonious mm. all the time mm. uh, very strong sense of lighting um, and something that Bouguereau often often get accused of is that they think that his his forms are are always very soft you know it almost looks like you've taken a fan brush and sort of mm -hmm. you know almost like airbrushed his paintings but the interesting thing is actually when you when you go up close to Bouguereau paintings at least the ones I've seen if you get up really, really close, all, all, all the values, all the color values, are in a specific shape. So you can see a woman, you know, let's say with a back, so it's like this big, round, soft form. And at the first glance, you think it's almost, you know, airbrushed quality on it. But when you get up close to it, you see that every brushstroke is, is a shape. Right. Okay. It's just that the color values are so extremely close together. Uh -huh that when you step away from it, they blend. But when you get up close to it, you see the definition between them. Right. So he actually paints in a much more mosaic-like style, uh, you know, mosaic in, in the terms of like building up shapes of values and colors that, that create form. Uh, he does that much more than most people think. Uh, so his sense of form is also extremely strong. Um, and lighting, I mean, it's, it's um, I think that Bouguereau is probably in terms of academic uh, technical skills, he's, at least in my, I mean, not everyone would probably agree, but I don't know, but I think he's probably, I would say he's pretty much the peak of, of academic skill in painting. Right, right, yeah. His subject matter is a different deal, you know, because uh, like his work is often very pretty. He has done some more sort of darker images as well that feel more, um, what do you call it? There's more drama in them, yeah. but, but very often you have these sort of like very pleasant pictures. But but his technique is is impeccable. At some point, you study with Odd Nordrum, yeah. Also, yeah. That was uh, so. How, how was what's, well, how was that? Uh, yeah, what simultaneous I contrast. Yeah. Uh, so what I did is that I did my three years in Florence. So I, I went through the whole program, and then I I graduated in the. Uh, let's see. I think it was Christmas 2001. Mm. Uh, that's when I when I was done with my training. I went back to Sweden, uh, and I looked at my work and said, "Okay, I'm finally good enough to contact Ordnerdom." Mm. <laughs> so I I put together in those days, you know, you couldn't send images so easily by email. So I just uh, had basically some 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 photos taken of, of my work. So it would be like portraits and, and figures and maybe some landscapes. <clears throat> and I put them together in, in a letter where I just explained to Todd, like I've been following your work for years and I've been to the Florence Academy, really admire your work, you know, and it would be really good to, you know, if I could come and, and study with you. 
and I sent it off. Uh, super scared, obviously, because uh, uh, my worst fear was that a letter would come back, you know, saying, "No, I'm sorry, there's no hope for you." <laughs> so, so I was sitting there. So I was, I was definitely. It was like a, a man waiting for his death sentence. I was, I was sitting at home, being super afraid, super scared. Um, and I think I don't think that was intentional. Uh, maybe it was. I, I think it was just by, by sort of. Because, you know, like when you're running a school like here, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on and it's easy yeah. for some certain things to just, oh, we forgot about that. Yeah. So if I would have had to wait for like a month or something, I think I would have, you know, I would have been climbing, like climbing the walls or something in my apartment. But I actually got an answer back two days later. So I, I sent it in, <laughs> let's say I sent it in on a Tuesday and I got yeah. a letter back, I think on Thursday or Friday. Wow. Saying, you know, and it was from, it was from, from Tudor that said like, yeah, we all likes your work. You can come over for Easter. And that's when I, the first time I came over here was Easter 2002. Right, right. So yeah, I was lucky. I just had to wait, was it two or three days? <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, okay. Uh, how then was coming from the Florence Academy <coughs> to Adnodrum studio, seeing the, the way of working, what was the, yeah, um, I mean, first of all, it, it was uh, it was an amazing experience to finally you know meet this person who had inspired me to really go through all of this uh, training, you know, and and uh, you know his very uh, what do you call it like compelling imagery, you know, that that had been going on in my in my mind for 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 a long time. Um, <clears throat> so coming here was obviously super inspiring. Um, and but what I'm glad about was that when when because the way that all works, I mean, obviously with his experience and and his talent, um, he has really no restrictions in terms of technique. Right. I mean, I think he can he can start the painting in a way that to someone that has limited experience it wouldn't make no sense whatsoever. You know, like why does he start? Like I remember, I, I can give you a good example. He started. Um, a port, it was the first painting I, I saw when when old paint. It was a blank canvas. It was just the the imprimatura, you know, the, yeah. the gray surface. Yeah. And then he was going to paint this uh, this woman who was um, she 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 had a bow on her back. So it was almost like a portrait that was in a landscape. And I remember when he started that painting, and it just took like he had a big blob of sort of salmon pink on the palette, and he just dipped his his um, uh, his fan brush in this. And then it just paint, painted a big, big pink egg on the canvas. That was the very first thing. And then he he stabbed the the um, the um, the fan brush in pure black. And then it just did two dots like like for the eyes. And I was looking around like, is is this the candid camera? I was like, <laughs> because it looked it looked so bizarre. Uh, it's just this pink egg with two dots. I was like, what the hell is going on? Here? And then he kept working on it, and you know how he it's works. Priceless. Yeah, and he's just sort of you know he's working away and he's talking at the same time. And I was sitting there, and and this was after three years of, of Florence Academy, so so I I knew some stuff. It wasn't side size. No, it wasn't side size either. Uh, and I was sitting there watching, and then after like twenty minutes, I was like, hmm, I think I have better starts than that, you know. So I was like, oh, so I was almost getting a little bit cocky, right? And then he kept working away, and he was talking at the same time. And then after like an, an hour and a half or something, he, he, that was, you know, he had to, there was a break or something. 
And by then I was almost crying because all of a sudden he had taken this pink egg and he just developed this into, into this amazing, you know, amazing, amazing form, amazing drawing, amazing color. Like everything was just there. And, mm-hmm. and the thing was, I, cu- I couldn't see how it happened. You know, it was just, you look at it and it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden there's one brush stroke and it's like, oh my God, it's there. So it, in some way you could say that it's almost the opposite uh, approach that, than in the Florence Academy in the sense that it doesn't secure the form. Yeah, he, yeah. He develops the form as he goes. Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and, the, uh, and, I th- and I think that was the benefit of, of having the training uh, with the Florence Academy because otherwise I would have been super confused like seeing that. Right. Because I obviously I understood looking at it, okay, so he's doing everything at the same time. Right. He's drawing and he's thinking about the color and the atmosphere right. and the form and you know the shapes and, and the edges, everything at the same time. Yeah. So it, it wasn't broken up in, in very clear steps like right. Florence Academy would do. But right? this is great. I mean, <clears throat> this is exactly what you were you set out to do. You have to be good enough first yeah. to be able to study with him so that you are able to understand what he's doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I think if, if I would have come to Odd before I went to Florence Academy, uh, I think I would have been very confused, you know, mm-hmm. because when you're on that level of painting, uh, you don't have to follow any rules. <laughs> and, for, and for a young person, you know, I think for young people, it's more important, like, oh, you need to understand the rules, you know. Uh, so, I mean, I think for some people, obviously, it works, but I'm not sure it would have worked. I mean, I mean I've, I've seen, I think I mentioned this to um, Boris Kohler, uh, painters who saw Ardnodrum turn more Know, his technique more coarse, more the late Rembrandt mm-hmm. edition, mm-hmm. and then they went stru- directly to that, and it yeah, just yeah, fell yeah. apart. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's the thing with painting very loosely. I mean, it, it's it's probably the most difficult thing you can do, right? right. Because the the balance of of it just disintegrating and falling apart right. or holding together. I mean, it's such a it's like balancing on a knife's edge. I mean, it's so th- that's that that's a real value in the Florence Academy education. This security of form. Yeah, I think a security of form, but also understanding. Uh, I, I think it's it, a really good thing that Florence Academy does is that it breaks down all the qualities mm. that needs to be in a painting. Mm. But it's not this sort of like mush together thing. But it's like okay, it has to have good drawing. Mm. Okay, is the drawing correct? Okay, check. You know, check the drawing is good. Mm. The values need to be correct, or the or the values good. Okay, check. That's good. Or the edge is good, mm. okay? Well, the edges are good, fine. Or the color is good. Mm. So you can break it down. Right. right. And, and the good thing about that is that you can look at work and, uh, and you can say, okay, the drawing is really good. You know, the values are really good. The colors are good, but your edges are completely off. Mm. You know, you need to work on your edges because handling of edges is obviously where the form, really, the illusion of form happens. So, so the good thing about that is that you can you can pinpoint you can look at an image that doesn't work, uh, and the person doing it might not know why why it doesn't work. But if you have that sort of like breaking down all the different elements that need to be right, then you can say, well, it's the edges that don't work. Mm. The rest is fine. If you fix so, the edges, then you you can you you know you can keep working on it. And in, in terms of uh, composition, then because obviously, when if there's one thing. Uh, People think about when it comes to Odnerdrum, it's composition, mm-hmm. narrative. Yeah. So was that, uh, how was that studying with Odnerdrum and seeing that? No, I, I thought it was really, it was really inspiring because, and also I saw how, how he was completely merciless with his work. Right. Uh, and how he, how he, uh, anything to get the composition right, to make the image right and just see how, 
he could scrape down a fig, a, like a life-size figure that was beautifully painted. Mm. But it was, oh, it's in the wrong place. Or there was something that bothered him about it. And then he would just scrape it down. So mm. like being so merciless and, and, and foremost, I would say fearless in, in, in the work. Because I think that's a very hard thing also as a painter. You know, as you mature, you get more fearless, obviously, because you know you can fix anything. Uh, but it's, especially as a young student, you know, you get it's 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 a big risk of becoming very anal with what you actually have right, on, on right. the canvas. You know, I mean, like the it, it's always fun. Like when I was teaching in the in the in the FAA, for instance, it was always fun to see. You could almost sometimes do it as a test to see the psychology of a student. You know, because they would have a painting and they thought that everything. You know, if they moved something a millimeter, you know, everything would fall apart. Yeah. And you were just like, can I borrow your palette? And you would just take their palette and you would just paint on their painting. Yeah. And you know, you would blur those edges that they thought were so, you know, right. perfect or whatever. And they weren't. And you painted over it and you can just see their face like sort of, you know, becoming completely pale in the face. Because you, in their mind, you were ruining their work. Yeah. But really what you were doing is that you were, you were making the changes necessary so they could keep working on it. You right. know, because... Uh, it's, it's very easy, I think, as a young painter, if you don't have enough guidance, it's very easy to sort of get very locked in, into the, the painting and, 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 well, basically, well, well, the old expression, kill your darlings, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a cliche expression, yeah. but it's so true, though, and, and I think it's, it's very important for, for, you know, to learn at an early age that, you know, you can, you can destroy anything and, like, you can paint over everything, scrape it down and start over, it doesn't matter. The yeah, only so, thing that matters is, is the image when it's done. But it, it's, it's a maturing thing. And I think yeah. not everyone, I, I think the, the, the issue that people have with that is like it's less and more in some people. Uh, but I, I remember me struggling with that. You know, like if you had a perfect outline of an arm, for instance, and then, you know, why would I want to, you know, get rid of that outline? Mm. But it's a maturing thing. But then you have, <clears throat> uh, I mean, the, the striking thing about you and, I mean, your works in oil I remembered when you had painted the the burning horse mm. and I don't know I don't know it doesn't come out uh, good enough I think in the reproduction even though it's beautiful the, yeah, the, it's, the, it's hard how, to reproduce, how you yeah. managed to get that extreme coolness of the warmth mm -hmm. when it's where it's hottest yeah 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 and uh, yeah there's actually like uh, greens and blues inside the the heat here like right, inside, right so and then you have this immense drama. Then th this is really storytelling and and uh, painterliness coming together. Mm -hmm. Is this something then that you started doing? Uh, I guess it's a superfluous question after <laughs> after you had finished the Florence Academy. Like uh, like how was that? I mean, yeah, I I think um, I mean especially when when. <clears throat> I mean, I knew even before I, I went to Florence Academy that my, my, my biggest sort of heroes in painting were like, like you know, Rembrandt and Odd Nerdrum and, and Zorn to a certain extent, yeah. Ilya Repin as well. Uh, and, and all of those painters have a much more sort of painterly and, and they work much more with textures and things like that. Right. Um, but, but my focus was that when I was, when I was in school, I worked academically, you know, so I learned that from, from point A to Z and I knew exactly what it was about. Uh, but then when I started doing my own work after being a student, then I started like venturing into these other fields of, 
working more painterly, uh, loosening things up. You know. That was basically basically your plan all along. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. even though I, I I have huge respect for someone for for someone like Bugaro, I mean, it, it's uh, just having that technical skill. I think is 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 mind blowing, but that was never the way I wanted to work. You know, right. I mean, it's almost like you um, you didn't set out to be an academic painter. No, not really, not really. Um, I mean, it's the same thing as. Uh, you know, you can respect something. Uh, I mean, it's, let's say, like in music, for instance. Let's say um, someone really likes, you know, jazz. I mean, I hate jazz. I think it's awful, right? But I can respect that. You know, okay, well, they, they're doing jazz, but you know, they're really good musicians. It's not for me, but but they really know what they're doing. Right. right. Uh, so you can respect it, even though you don't necessarily have to to you know be an admirer of it in that right. sense. And for me, I think Bogoro is a good example. I mean, he is amazing painter, but it's not really what I wanted, mm. the imagery that I wanted to do. So, mm. And I'm, I'm also asking about it because I think you, you painted this when you were an academic director at the Florence Academy in Gothenburg, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it was one of my last years. I think this right. one is from 2012. Yeah. Because this is like the segue into to talking about what you're doing now with mm. the gaming industry, illustration. I mean, you would, you, would you call yourself an illustrator? Is that the, sort of the basic baseline here? I don't know. I think I'm a weird hybrid. I mean, I... I uh, okay, we'll call you a weird hybrid. Yeah, I'm a weird hybrid. Yeah. Okay, but, but before, we, before we get to that, that, tell us about that period with the Florence Academy as an academic director. Or yeah. yeah. Rather, I mean, the point is not the Florence Academy, but the position of being an academic director. Yeah. Because, yeah. of course, this is, I think, uh, something that a lot of painters and, and you know, anyone who wants to live off of creating something mm-hmm. deal with yeah. having to you know, focus on the work, but then having to have a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's a reality for a lot of people. If you could people, sort yeah. of walk us through fairly quickly how that was and why you, yeah, left. Yeah. yeah um, well, the thing is, I mean, I was teaching for for quite a few years in in the Florence Academy. Before that, in 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 Florence, in Florence yeah. Right. I was teaching for a couple of years in Florence before I was asked to become uh, the academic director in Sweden mm. for the for the new school. <clears throat> And uh, and I enjoyed teaching immensely. I thought it was really, uh, it was very stimulating. You know, a lot of people can say in a very sort of, you know, being, you know, trying to be very, oh, I'm so generous. You know, oh, I really like teaching, you know, but maybe they don't. You know, it's just mm. a, a way to, to, you know, to seem like a generous person. But I, I genuinely like teaching. I, I really like the sort of dialogue and figuring out problems, you know, t- together with students. Yeah, because you uh, learn from it. Right? Yeah, you learn from it. And, and uh, actually one of the things uh, that, that Daniel Graves told me when I started teaching, which was so true, he said, like, when you start teaching and you start guiding other people, yeah. then that's the first time you, you will realize what you know and what you don't know. Right. Because you, if you're not able to explain it to another person, yeah. you don't know it. I was like, oh, that... That sounds weird, you know. It's like if, if I can do it, obviously I know, you know. Yeah. Um, but 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 it was so true because I, I remember then, uh, you know, when you stand in front of a, of a student work, for instance, and you're trying to help them the best you can, and all of a sudden I, I I have this sort of intuition. If like if I would do it on my own work, I'd just do it, just using intuition or or getting a hunch or whatever you want to call it. Um, but you can't really you can't really say that to a student. You know, you have to have some clear advice to a student, right. and all of a sudden you have to sort of find you you have to find the 
the vocabulary for uh, everything that you're talking about. So even if things have not been, even if you you didn't like you didn't have words for something before, uh, being a teacher forces you to have words for what you're trying to communicate. I mean, otherwise you you can't really teach. Um, so he, he told me that you will realize what you know and what you don't know. And it, it was so true, because then if you were standing in front of a student and you wanted to say something, but you didn't have the words for it, you'd have to like go back and, and think about it. Like, actually, why do I want the person to do this? Mm. And then, oh, this is why. And then you would find you know, the trigger sort of to, to, to explain things. So anyway, uh, teaching, I thought, was, uh, was really rewarding. Um, and what I did, was, uh, I, was I was teaching, I think it was one and a half days a week. Uh, which I think is a very, very good balance right. uh, for me. And I think this is something that is, I think it's very individual. I think some people probably wouldn't mind teaching five days a week. Some people might actually think that teaching is more fun than, than painting. Uh, for me, it never was like that. Like I always, I always wanted to create imagery, like making images. That's, what I, that's my main drive. Like when I get up in the morning, what do I want to do? I want to make images. Um, and uh, and uh, when I was doing one and a half days a week, that was the perfect balance, you know, because you could come in with a lot of energy, you could teach for one and a half days, you know, and, and be very sort of uh, focused, energetic, hopefully, um, uh, and and, um, and helpful as a teacher, you know, and, and being involved, you know, very involved with their work, uh, because you had so much time working on your own work, so. As you're working on your own work and you're trying to figure things out uh, and you come to the student and you might see that oh my god they actually have a similar problem you know so then you can discuss with the student and very often you also learn from from your student because i mean uh, even if you're a teacher okay you, you have quite a bit of knowledge but you don't have all the knowledge and all of a sudden the student has figured out something that you never figured out right and then you learn from them yeah um so it's definitely give and take um i think um, starting a school is, is a different beast, though, because all of a sudden, if you if you the, you're the director of the school, you get involved with you know the government, the different programs, you know student uh, bureaucracy and all those things. Um, and again, naivety. Uh, being naive, I didn't. I, I completely underestimated how much time you know that that would take, uh, much time and energy. Um, Was that just in a startup phase, or then? Throughout the years, I, I thought it was just going to be the startup phase, <laughs> uh, which I thought was oh, two years. It's going to be two years of, of you know doing all of this, but then it's sort of like going to trickle out. And but I mean, it's not like that. If you if you're running, I mean, running a school is, is basically like running a company. You know, you constantly yeah. have to. Uh, and, and I had amazing colleagues. I mean, like uh, I started the school together with with Andreas Birot, uh, right. who, who's still uh, who, who is academic director now. Yeah, he's the, yeah. the academic director now. And uh, we worked really well together. And and uh, and to be really honest, he he took most of the of the work, the, like the sort of practical work. So uh, so I, um, it could have been much worse, you know, right. for me. But but in the long run, it was just, I don't know. It, it just took too many hours uh, away a week. I think you know, um, Ibsen, mm -hmm. Henrik Ibsen was um, the director of a, a theater in, in, uh, in Norway uh, in his younger years. And then he stopped doing that. And then afterwards, an, another uh, colleague of his is going to be a director too. 
And it just warns him and says, you know, doing that kind of work is like an abortion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Don't, don't do it. Yeah. So, I mean, is that sort of what, uh, you know, made you lose interest in being, uh, being there? Did all the, all the bureaucracy involved with it? With it? Uh, what started sort of trickling through in my own work was that I, I, would, I, would, I was starting to and this then obviously come back to, uh, comes back to wh- what, I, what I enjoyed as a child, you know, yeah. with the role-playing games and, and Star Wars and, and Lord of the Rings and all these kind of things, um, was that in my own work, um, in my studio, I started to make these more sort of imaginative paintings. Right. Uh, like the burning horse you were talking about, for instance. Right. That was right. one of them. And I did a bunch of other ones as well. And it, I started like shifting, and I and I, and I realized that okay, I I I'm not one, I don't want to paint another still life in my whole life. You know, uh, I I just got so fed up with still lives, and and, and in the gallery work. But, but you still took it quite far with heart on the plate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that was a still life that I could actually feel excited about, but it's not really a still life. It's more sort of like just a. It's still nar- It's turning into narrative. Yeah, yeah a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, one of the defining moments was actually we we had had a show somewhere internationally it was i think it was probably in i was probably in florence uh and i had like two paintings in the show and one was the burning horse and one was the one of lilith sitting there right and they're approximately the same size they're quite big they're not huge but they're quite large and uh i remember like looking at them like wow these are i think these are actually the two best paintings i've ever done and it's rare, you know, as a painter and being creative, it's rare that you feel that, you know, you're always self-critical. But I was looking at them and I was saying, like, objectively, no, this is actually, this is not bad. It's probably the two best works I've ever done. Most definitely. Yeah, and, 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 um, and uh, I got a lot of praise for them. People said, oh, this is amazing. You know, everyone was talking about the burning horse. That's so fantastic. Yeah, well, what happened? Like, six months later, I'm sitting in my studio and Lilith and the burning horse are wrapped in bubble wrap in my studio, unsold, collecting dust. Right. So I'm just sitting there, okay, they're just taking up space in my studio. I mean, so it just felt like this whole gallery world where, where um, um, you know, certain types of paintings are usually easy, easy, like easier to sell. And it just felt like, okay, the imagery that I want to do um, is not really wanted in the gallery world. I mean, there might be one occasional buyer that, you know, mm-hmm. that likes it. But it's not the standard for sure. So, so I mean, you, 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 we haven't been talking about that, but I guess you got uh, fed up with sort of doing, you know, portraits, still lives, and these things that could sell. Yeah, and, yeah. And yeah. on the other hand, uh, of course, also being tired of um, working, you know, too much, with too much bureaucracy, mm-hmm. and then on the third hand, wanting to do uh, narrative work, but experiencing that it didn't sell. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like right. a triple strike. Uh-huh. Right, 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 <laughs> yeah. right. So what, what made you, I mean, you didn't, uh, you, not only did you resign as a, a academic director at the Florence Academy, but mm-hmm. you stopped painting and you went into well, the what gaming I, industry. How did that uh, occur? At the same time, um, approximately, actually, my colleague um, uh, in, in Gothenburg, Andreas, had said for, for quite a, I think actually quite a few years, that I should try to work digitally uh, with a okay. Wacom with a Wacom tablet, right? Uh, because he uh, before he went to the Florence Academy and learned classical painting and drawing, 
he was in in uh, in basically he was in advertisement and those sort of things. Uh, so he had that background before he came to to Florence Academy, uh, and he was much more sort of in tune with with uh, you know digital work and and digital imagery. Um, and he said, like, oh, you should try the Wacom tablet. I think you might like it, uh, especially him seeing the, the, the work that I was doing. Uh, so one day I just decided, well, okay, I'm, I'm just going to buy one and, and try it out. Right. Uh, and I remember bringing it home, you know, just trying to figure out, okay, this is the pen and the, okay, this is how it works in Photoshop. Uh, and I started drawing with it. And um, the first image I did, I actually still have the very first image I did digitally. And it's 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 uh, heartbreaking to see how bad it is compared to my work in oil, because it's a different beast. Like when, when you work <clears throat> digitally, obviously uh, everything you know in painting, obviously that's in your head, you know, and you can utilize that when you work digitally. But just the sort of technical aspect of it, you know, yeah. how it works and functions and right. the, the tactility or tactile qualities of everything, uh, it took a while to get to get over that. Um, but I, I, I started working with it and I did the first image and I realized, oh my God, this looks terrible. Why, why, why does it look this terrible? And then I remember doing the second image <clears throat> and I figured, okay, I'm just going to pretend that I'm doing this in oil. So I'm going to work exactly like I would do on the canvas. So I would sort of have the same background as a sort of imprimatura. And just paint brush strokes over it. Says same progress. Yeah. Same progress, basically. Yeah. It's just that it's on yeah. a screen instead of a yeah. canvas. Right. And I did that, and I was like, "Wow, that's a lot better." You know, so I was not pretending. Okay, I have to work digitally, but I just worked in the way that I was comfortable with, and it looked better digitally. <laughs> you know, the the process that I used. So a lot of the process you could actually just transfer into you know in, into digital. Um, obviously, there's a lot of tricks and stuff that you can do that makes it easier to create images. Uh, fast and and uh, also that you have post-processing things that you can so there's a lot of tricks you can use which is even more beneficial if you're looking for the the best image possible uh, but I started making all these images just just practicing <clears throat> and by this time I, I was still I was still the director of the of the school in in Gothenburg so I was teaching several several days a week um, and I was standing in my studio I think for the first three months I was standing in my studio, you know, working in, in oil, but I was basically just looking at the clock, like, when can I go home and, and, and start working digitally at home? Right. So it started becoming like, oh, I got, I got this uh, doctor's appointment. I got to leave now early. And then I took off and then I went home and I started working, uh, you know, digitally at home. Right. Because <clears throat> the, the, the fantastic thing that happened to me, to me is that when I switched to, when I switched, switched to digital, um, and I should also men mention that obviously like in the, in the digital painting, in the concept and illustrator world uh, that you have digitally, there's, there's a million images on the internet and you have these really good websites. Um, like in those days, I think the, the main one was called CG Hub, uh, where you could just see tons of images from, you know, professionals working in gaming, working in movies, working in illustration, and everyone was just like uploading everything. So there was tons of references to look at, you know, to see what, what could actually be accomplished uh, digitally. Um, and looking at that, I just realized, oh my God, this is really what I want to do. And, and I started to work that way. So, so when I switched digitally, my subjects switched instantly as well. Right. Because, all of it, because I started making illustrations rather than paintings. Right, right. 
So I started making these illustrations just for stories that I've had in my head for a while, you know, and they could be related to sci-fi or horror, whatever it was. <clears throat> and I, I sent them away to one of my old role-playing friends, uh, like he's, he's still a good friend today. And he's always been very blunt and very direct with one, like he just gives it to you, you know, the way he sees it. And so it's like, oh, wow, you, you've been working digitally for a week and your imagery is way more interesting now than what you ever did in oil. <laughs> so then I was like, oh, yeah, maybe he's right. Um, so, but for a couple of months, I, I was still teaching at the school and I, I was basically just looking for an excuse to go home and practice the, the digital uh, work in the but, evening and I was working all, over, the week, over the weekends intensely as well, yeah. And I was thinking, um, uh, you know, when we're talking about what constitutes a good story, uh, and you and I were, have been talking about this uh, a bit before, uh, the whole idea of, of the mythic qualities, archetypical mm -hmm. qualities of the image. Yeah. So, uh, and one thing that really struck me when you were talking about, uh, you know, making these images as a, as a boy and working with Dungeons and Dragons and these things, mm. you, see, you, were talk you used the phrase to create non-existent worlds. Yeah. And when it comes to fantasy and sci-fi, uh, I think one of the things that you really highlighted was that and that that was that was really a striking formulation uh, that the within fantasy within sci science fiction you at least have the op option mm -hmm. the possibility of becoming more timeless yeah because you're not bound to historical time you don't, there's no specific time to illustrate if you have thrown everything out in the complete yeah i, I mean it's it's um if you think about, uh, I mean, like the, the example that we talked about early on, like Star Wars, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean there's a reason that picture is there. Uh, and this is from the first movie that was made, right? No, it's or, from Empire Strikes Back. It's so the second movie. So it's the yeah. second movie ever yeah, made, right. yeah. And, uh, and in my mind, it's really when, I mean, the first Star Wars movie that came out is, is amazing in its own uh, rights. But I think when George Lucas made it, because it was so sort of uns it was so uncertain if it was going to become a success, success or not, he made it a self-contained story. So I think it was really in the second movie when the actual story and the emotional drama qualities started happening. Right. Like the first one is more sort of like a space opera. Uh, I mean, it has it has some serious elements to it as well. But I think in the second one is really when the story started taking off, and it, and it actually became interesting in terms of, of drama the thing that really um, i watched these movies again now preparing for this so it's been quite entertaining yeah uh watching star wars and lord of the rings mm -hmm. uh, and it says in the beginning in a galaxy far far away uh, uh, a long time ago now how, how is it formulated uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far far away right, yeah, right. Yeah. and the, the strange thing is these guys are working with laser saber, sabers and with spaceships and high technology. Mm. And this is something that, ha that happened, you know, not, I mean, really quite, quite far away, but also of years quite ago. far away in time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that, uh, you know, when you, when you do that, you really can create a 
timeless situation. Yeah. Even though they're working with this high technology. Yeah. You, yeah, it, yeah. it sort of becomes a mythical situation in, in any case. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I would even argue that, uh, and I think a lot of people do, that, that Star Wars is not really science fiction. It's actually more fantasy. Than, right. than, than science fiction. Right, right, right. Because science fiction usually takes place, uh, you, science fiction usually builds on where we are now as a human civilization, and then where are we in 500 years or right. in, or in 10,000 years even. Oh, right. right Whereas right. Star Wars doesn't care about any of that. Star Wars is just, that happened somewhere in the universe a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think that's the brilliant thing that George Lucas did with it, because like you say, um, you know, you strip away everything uh, that attaches, uh, attaches um, you know, potentially the story to, you know, okay, us as humans and, you know, human culture, you know, you know maybe hundreds of years ago or in a hundred years. You just strip away everything. You, you create your own world, your own universe with its own rules far, far away. So there's nothing, there's no attachments whatsoever mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. any, and un, like basically politics uh, of today and and uh, the values that are today like all of that just goes out the window and you create your own universe and your own set of, of rules yeah and i that really has uh, stuck with me uh when you when you were when you were talking about star wars i mean i hadn't thought about much about star wars or or lord of the rings either mm. uh but i suddenly realized that aspect really strongly yeah. That uh, and and watching the the Empire Strikes Back, and there are some really touching scenes there. Mm -hmm. That's the amazing thing. It's not all action and and sort of you know. Uh, uh, that that's another thing. This uh, Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, you have a a seriousness. It's yeah. There's there's no irony whatsoever there. It's just no. Yeah. It's it's a there's a bit more of that in Star Wars than in Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. But still, that there are really gripping, serious uh, scenes. Yeah. And I think that the whole feeling is as a set of your work too, that that life is extremely important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's one thing that that was really. It, it, it kind of opened my eyes in some way that, you know. You can always like like I I, I was told <laughs> you know I made these dead people the watercolors yeah yeah, yeah of dead yeah, people yeah. They, they you know that have been dead for like two hundred years mm. uh, and uh, in one exhibition it was a review and I was mentioned in like a couple of sentences mm. basically being written off as you know my work belonging to the fantasy department mm -hmm. so so uh, so and of, of course that that is really mm. a timeless uh, situation. You could have been a concept artist for, for the Mummy movie or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, maybe if they call. Um, so, but anyways, there's, there's, a, uh, there's no irony. There's no tongue-in-cheek. Mm -hmm. Everything is important. This task, this mission is really, really important for us to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, no, it, it's super serious. Yeah. And, and I think uh, just going back to this thing with, with the timelessness, uh, uh, you know, like we said, you know, if, if you have a fantasy universe or a sci-fi universe, you can strip away everything that is basically just noise. Yes. You know, because if you if you have to if you have to set something in, in present day, or maybe just even in the in the in history. I mean, if you go far back uh, far back enough in history, obviously no one really knew knows how it was. You know, so then you have some some you can you can sort of make things up. 
<clears throat> but when you strip everything away, I mean, in, in fantasy and sci-fi, then you can basically, the story you want to tell, you can make it so condensed and sort of very extremely clear. So you know exactly what the stakes are, you know exactly, you know, who is good and, and who is bad, or not necessarily just who is, who is good and who is bad, but all the sort of noise that could just be distracting for the problem or in the story is stripped away. So you can, mm. you can just focus on the stuff that you, as a storyteller, think is the most important. But, uh, but with the hero's journey, uh, it, it's, it's, it's very interesting how, if you look at, um, originally I, I was thinking about you know, Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and The Matrix. Right. Because, <clears throat> because all of those three follow the, the hero's journey. Uh, some it's it's also called the monomyth. Uh, they follow it like really by the book. Uh, so the thing is, like in all those stories, I mean, it's basically the same story. It's just that it's in a different setting, and the characters look different and they have different names, but the archetypes are exactly the same mm. in, in all of them. Uh, so if you if you take the you know uh, the first part of the hero's, hero's journey, for instance, is just called the ordinary world. Uh, and that's when we, when we as a viewer or reader, when we meet the hero, and the hero is a normal person, you know, just like us. You know, he's not a he's not a hero. He's a, he's a normal guy or girl. Um, so in in the case of Star Wars, for instance, you know, you have Luke, and he's working on his uncle's farm on on Tatooine. He's walking around. He's dreaming of something else. You know, he's like a peasant boy, but he's dreaming of something. But he, he's basically bored where where he is. So he's a dreamer, but but he he doesn't have a future really. Uh, in Lord of the Rings, it's it's similar. It's not exactly the same, but it's basically Frodo living in the Shire. Uh, he doesn't seem as bored as Luke, but he's living a very mundane life. You know, he's going to the pub, he's drinking pints with his buddies, and he's, yeah. you know, singing and, and having a good time. Um, and in the Matrix, you know, Neo, who is the protagonist, uh, he is a bored programmer working for a computer company. So that's the ordinary world. You're presented. Um, you're, you're introduced to the hero in, in the sort of life situation that the hero is used to. So that's, where, that's what they've been doing for, you know, for a long time. And that the audience can relate to. You can always relate to, yeah, because they're like you and me, right? Yeah. Um, and then what happens usually then uh, is that you have uh, uh, the call to adventure. And what that is, is that like the, the first little hint that the hero will not be able to like stay in this sort of secure life that he has. Something is about to change. Uh, you don't know exactly what yet, but you're getting hints that something is about to change. Uh, and in, in Star Wars, it's a scene where, where um, the, the droid R2-D2 presents a hologram. Mm. <clears throat> it's a hologram that is just being projected. And Luke doesn't know it. it's Princess Leia. He doesn't know her yet in, in the story. It's just this anonymous girl in a hologram asking a character called Obi-Wan Kenobi for help. And he doesn't know who Obi-Wan Kenobi is either. So he, it's this sort of enigma. What is this beautiful girl? Uh, he doesn't know by then that they're sister, like they're, they're siblings either. So, but that's a different story. But like he, she's beautiful and she's asking for help and she mention, mentions this character name. So that's the call to adventure. Uh, so you basically understand, okay, something, something is going on and things are gonna change. Um, in Lord of the Rings, uh, it's, a, it's the scene where Gandalf, um, he basically, Gandalf starts understanding, he doesn't say it uh, out loud, but he starts understanding there might be something with this ring 
that is very dangerous and, and very important. And he doesn't want to take any chances. So he just gives the ring to Frodo and says, like, keep it secret, keep it safe. And then he takes off. So Frodo takes the ring to keep it secret and to keep it safe. Um, and in the Matrix, uh, there's, uh, I don't have to go through all of, all, of, all of the scenes, but you have a similar scene in the Matrix as well. Mm. And uh, like it is w with, with like humans in general, uh, most of us people, we don't like change in our life. And I think that's, why, that's one of the reasons why the hero's journey is so important and resonates with so many people. Because we want things to be, you know, in, I'm not talking about Star Wars now, I'm talking about like real life. Most of us want our lives to be the way they, they've always been. Right. You know, we don't want to age. Uh, you know, we don't want our parents to die. We don't want to lose our job, whatever it is, you know. So change is very often threatening to the human existence. Um, but what happens then, uh, well, consequently what happens in the hero's journey is that the hero doesn't want this change to happen, whatever is coming. Right. So Luke says, uh, when, when, he, when he has met Obi-Wan, which is the mentor, which is the archetype, you know, you have Gandalf in Lord of the Rings being the mentor, so they're basically the same character. And you have Morpheus in, 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 in the Matrix. Uh, but basically Luke says, I can't go with you on this adventure, you know, because I have to stay here and, and be a farm boy. And, uh, and Frodo is afraid of taking the ring, so he offers the ring to Gandalf, and so like, you have to take care of it. Uh, so it's, it's called the refusal of the call. So right. it's basically the hero doesn't want change in his life, like most of us don't. Um, and there, there's a scene in The Matrix which, uh, which does this as well. Uh, and then you move on and, and the hero, it's, it's called basically crossing the threshold. And that's the first time that the hero steps out of his comfortable life, either by force or by his own will. Yeah. He basically takes his first step into the adventure. It really struck me that example from Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Could you really hi highlight that? Because that's yeah, the thing is, I, I, I can't remember if it's in the book. I, I think it might be only in the movie, but it doesn't matter because I, I, I mean... Storytelling. Yeah, storytelling. Um, there's a scene when, when Frodo, the, ma the main protagonist, and his, uh, his sort of uh, trusted friend and sidekick, he's more than a sidekick, it's basically, I mean, it's, his, it's the guy who's going to, their best buddies. Uh, and they're going on this thing where they know, okay, we have to take the ring to, to the volcano, you know, Mount Doom in Mordor. They have a long trip ahead of them. But they're sort of like moving across the landscape, you know, very nice views. And all of a sudden they're, they're standing in the middle of a farm field and they're both walking and then Sam stops. And Frodo keeps walking for a while and then he notices, that, oh, Sam is, where's Sam? And he looks back and then Sam says, this is it. And he says, this is what? If I take one more step, it's the closest away from home that I've ever been. Farthest away. Farthest oh, away. sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the furthest away from yeah. home that I've ever been. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it would be the coward's journey. <laughs> yeah. You know, so he says, if I take one more step, it's going to be the furthest away from home I've ever been. So he even tell you straight up, like, right. like, he has never been this far away from home anymore. He's going into unexplored territory. And, and he, he is on an adventure now. You yeah. know? So they're, they're really like riding it on, you know, on your nose, really. Uh, and in The Matrix, you have this scene when, when, when Neo gets to choose, he you know, take the blue pill or the red pill. Right. And basically, you take the blue pill, you just go back to your boring life, you know, nothing ever happened. He decides to take the red pill, and then basically the reality, you know, 
the illusion of reality gets ripped apart and he wakes up in this right. sort of like slimy, yeah. nasty pond. So that's where the hero starts growing up. Yeah, it's his first step into the, the, the supernatural world, you know, so it's like when, when the adventure starts and then you have all these steps of uh, trials and, and, and uh, friends and enemies, you know, like in, in Star Wars, when uh, like crossing the threshold in Star Wars is when, when, when Luke and Obi-Wan go into the, the cantina, they go to a town that's called Mos Eisley mm. because they, wanna, they have to get a flight from the planet. So they have to find a pilot with a yeah. ship, you know. And they meet Han Solo, and then it's like, oh, he seems sort of dodgy. You know, is he a friend or is he an enemy? And and you you know, like in the Matrix, you have trials. You know, because he has to uh, he has to practice martial arts and stuff like that. So so he's, 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 there's trials as well. Mm. And in in like Empire Strikes Back, like the part two of, of, of Star Wars. Well, part uh, what is it? Part five, but but it was the second one ever made. When Luke is training with Yoda, you know, he's also having all these trials uh, because he's being trained as a Jedi. So he's going through all these tests mm -hmm. and some of the tests he, he, you know, he's doing really well and some of the tests he's failing. So, so you have, you know, with the hero's journey, you know, there's about 10, 12 steps, you know, from, from point A to, you know, from, from beginning to end. But, but uh, as an example, like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and the Matrix, they all follow almost to the to the to the note you know exactly mm. this this pattern mm. um, and it works and the, the funny thing is that every time we see every time we, we, we read one of those stories or every time we we see one of those stories in a movie we like it even though we've been told this story before but we seem to forget that we've been told this story and somehow it matters equally as much every time you but it's just because it deals with the fundamentals yeah, it is the fundamentals, mm. and and uh, and and uh, it so, always yeah it it it's always gripping. Ultimately, if, I mean, if you take away or, or let's say Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, if you take away the the social mm. speaking of that you know social uh, status of these things, mm. just look at how successful is this story and this story and this mm -hmm, story. Mm -hmm. Then of course there are different aspects, but it, it's different. It's, yeah. it's levels of storytelling. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's, I mean, that's really something you can get out of watching Star Wars or or reading, for yeah, example, yeah. You know, or watching Lord of the Rings. And, and I think also there, there there is a, you know, let's 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 just for the sake of argument agree that okay, you have you have high you know high art you know art, and then you have illustration and. Mm and Star Wars, whatever, you know, for those people who want to put them in, in like on, on, a, on a different level, right? But the interesting thing is that if you look at even Shakespeare, like some of the Shakespeare stories, I would say probably most of them also apply to the hero's journey. Right. And there's actually quite a, there's actually, you know, and Shakespeare is supposed to be like the peak of literature in, 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 in the Western world. And, and there's so many similarities between Shakespeare and Star Wars, for instance. So what happens then, you know, if you have Star Wars and Shakespeare, and Shakespeare is so much better than Star Wars. It's just you know it's stupid entertainment, but they actually have more in common than maybe some other things, uh, you know, that's being produced. That you know that. Well, they have more in common than, for example, uh, uh, Matisse and exactly, Shakespeare. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. In yeah, terms yeah. of storytelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, if if you look at uh, if you look at Macbeth, for instance, <clears throat> like Macbeth gets a gets a prophecy in the beginning. You know, are oh, you going to become king and blah blah blah? You know, with these uh, three witches. Uh, it's the same thing in Star Wars. Like the guy who becomes Darth Vader, originally he's called Anakin Skywalker. 
Right. And he's also given a prophecy, you know, he's going to become the person who who mends the universe and brings peace and, you know, peace and prosperity to the, gal to the galaxy. Uh, and, and then you have, like in Hamlet, you know, you, you have Hamlet, who is, who is uh, you know, this young, naive person, and his father is dead, and then you have the ghost coming, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and, and mentoring him. And the mentor in that sense, like the ghost in Hamlet is almost like Obi-Wan in, in Star Wars. Right, right. Because Obi-Wan dies eventually, and then he comes back as a ghost, and he just gives him some, you know, some information and, and some wisdom. So, you know, then, okay, how, how many percent do they share? I mean, it's, it's difficult to quantify, I guess, but there is way more similarities than, than, than I think that, that people would, um, would expect at the first glance. Right, know? right. And when you're talking about, about um, I mean, I guess... Neither uh, Hamlet nor uh, Macbeth, at least not Macbeth, is a, your typical classical hero. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's, that's uh, I think, one thing I really wanted to, to hear you talk about then, in continuation of this, the modern versus the classical mm. hero. Mm. Because this, you know, depending on which one you choose, mm -hmm. your story will either be completely a failure or a success in terms of really reaching the archetypical uh, yeah. uh, baseline. Yeah. Um, the thing is... So what is a modern hero? I mean, if you look at the modern heroes, uh, the modern heroes are, I would say, at best, uh, they're anti-heroes. Uh, yeah. they're, they're sort of... They're filled with flaws. Um, which we all are. So I, uh, let's put it this way. I think in, in some respect, maybe the modern heroes are more realistic. You know, maybe they are more like us in the sense that they have flaws, you know, and they have sides that are good and they have sides that are bad. So they're more naturalistic. So. More naturalistic in a way, yeah. So if you take an example like, I mean, even though I, I love the world of Game of Thrones, uh, I think Game of Thrones is, is, a, is a fantastic, you know, uh, fantasy universe that, that was created. Uh, interesting characters, in, interesting intrigues, and everything, but but uh, unlike Star Wars, in Star Wars, it's it's very clear that okay, Luke is good, Darth Vader is bad. Yeah. And in Game of Thrones, it's it's Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, <laughs> it's 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 uh, you know, one person is is bad, and then it's like, oh, he's not bad. He's actually okay. Oh, then now he's bad again. Yeah. Um, and I think that's fine, but but I, but I think. Um, the difference is that the, the classical hero is more sort of like an, an ideal, it's more like an inspiring, inspiring example right. to, to um, something that inspires you. I mean, it's like I, uh, you know, you look at, um, we don't even have to take Star Wars, you know, we can even, we can even take something like the Bible, you know, like, the, like Jesus, the story of Jesus, uh, you know, and when he dies on the cross and all this, and, and when he's being tortured and all this. Um, I mean, and, and and I, I'm not like a religious person, but it's still a compelling story because, I mean, the way, like in, in the sort of courageous way that he faces death at the end, that's, that's the way that I wish that I would face death eventually when it happens. You know? right. I just wish, I, could I be as calm and sort of resolute and, 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 and courageous when it actually happens? You know? So it, it is inspiring. Uh, and, and with Luke Skywalker in, in Star Wars, you know, when he's, he's being tempted by the dark side continuously, you know, like all over, over and over and over. 
and he's he's really close to to becoming like his father at the end like he's close to to joining the dark side but he manages to like hold it together and you know and and basically when when uh, you know the, the the most evil character in the whole universe the emperor is trying to corrupt him at the end he realizes what's going on and he just throws his weapon down and he goes all sort of like peaceful you know buddhist and said like no yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to do this so it's basically do whatever you want with me i don't care i'm not gonna i'm not gonna obey you uh, and i think in in terms of inspiring people i think the the classical hero is is much stronger than the modern the modern one it's might it might be easier to might be easier to relate to the modern hero but the classical hero i think is much more something that if you if you if you would uh, what's it called in english like aspire to yeah, to aspire. yeah to 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 be more like that it's probably a better thing than to sort of be a hero that's 50 shades of gray you know and obviously i mean we have flaws enough as it is as human beings anyway so i think you know to aspire to be something that that is that doesn't have as many as many flaws i think is is probably a good thing Joachim Eriksson thank you for coming to the cave of pillars Thanks for having me. And thank you for watching. Remember, you can support our channel at caveoverpellus.com. I'll see you next month.